Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 67, Women Priests on the Block. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Yar when we yar. Have all you can eat when we have all you can eat. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 8, New Kid on the Block, which first aired on November the 12th, 1992. And I'm going to be talking about the Anglican Church, because on November the 11th, 1992... The day before New Kid on the Block first aired, the General Synod voted to ordain women as priests. And I should say at the top that I've had a filling, which is probably why I sound a bit weird. I'm still getting used to my new mouth. New teeth. Strange. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, November the 12th, 1992. Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? Still end of the road. Must have been a long road. <laughs> so let's dip to number two again, and it's as 90s as they come. Yes. It's Charles and Eddie with Would I Lie to You. Charles Pettigrew and Eddie Chacon whose surname I forgot to look up the pronunciation of, apparently met on the C train in the New York subway and got talking as one of them was carrying a Marvin Gaye record. I hope that's true, because that's a pretty good origin story if it is. They were signed to Capitol Records and released two albums before splitting amicably in 1997. This track was written by Mike Leeson and Peter Vale and produced by Josh Deutscher. And it was a nod to classic soul records such as Gay's, but with a modern production sheen. World-beating stuff at the time, and it will go to number one in the UK later in our timeline. As well as in Germany, Austria, Belgium, New Zealand, and, yes, Zimbabwe. <laughs> it also hit number 13 in the Billboard Hot 100, and even went platinum in the UK, topping 600,000 units shipped. It would be fair to say that nothing else they released lived up to the success of this single, although it does need to be borne in mind that it was incredibly successful. Post C&D, Charles toured with Tom Tom Club, which is Talking Heads members Tina Weymouth and Chris Francis' other band, and actually joined the group and co-wrote some songs, but passed away in 2001 at the age of 37, with cancer. Eddie, though has recently made a comeback to music after two decades, releasing an album with a clutch of singles in 2020. So that's nice to hear. I've got a quick Eddie fact for you. His first steps into music as a teenager were in a band with Cliff Burton and Mike Puffy Borden, who went on to join Metallica and Faith No More, respectively. So it all could have been very different for Eddie. The US viewership was a Nielsen of 14.4, equivalent to 13.4 million households. It was 23rd overall for the week, and the highest rated show on Fox. The production number is 9F06, and the credited writer is Conan O'Brien. We're clearly getting to the wave of the future here. But, Tom, sit, sit perfectly still. Only I may dance. <laughs> 
Conan Christopher O'Brien was born in Massachusetts. Tom, what university do you think he attended? Yale. <laughs> Close. The other one, then. Um, Harvard. And not only did he write for the Harvard Lampoon, he was president of the Harvard Lampoon. On graduation, he wrote for a few different satirical comedy shows before being hired by Saturday Night Live in January 1988. He appeared as an extra in some sketches and wrote a fascinating-sounding pilot for an Adam West vehicle called Lookwell about an ex-TV star who tries to solve crimes. When that wasn't picked up and Conan simultaneously had some issues in his personal life, he quit Saturday Night Live and was contacted by Mike Reese and Al Jean. And off he went to The Simpsons. Guiding the show in a more surreal and showy direction than the relatively grounded family sitcom it started out as, he was considered a sure thing to be a showrunner in the future, until a bizarre turn of events. Having previously been urged to consider performing as well as writing, he auditioned for the long-running NBC talk show Late Night, as David Letterman was quitting, and he got the job. He presented the show from 1993 to 2009, becoming its longest-running host to date. He then jumped to The Tonight Show to replace Jay Leno, though this was not a successful move, before starting another talk show called Conan on TBS. Finally, in 2018, he successfully invented the podcast, with Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I'm being deliberately difficult here, it's not Conan's fault at all. But sometimes you wonder if the mainstream media never realised the podcast existed until successful comedians started making them. He was a guest voice on Futurama and played the Riddler in the Lego Batman movie. And his Simpsons credits include Season 4, Episode 12, Marge vs. the Monorail, and only three other episodes including this one. Although his influence appears to have been felt across the writing staff. He will also appear as himself in Season 5, Episode 12, Bart Gets Famous. What an odd career. Mm. But very successful. Very, very successful. The chalkboard gag is, I will not bring sheep to class. And the couch gag is, the couch falls through the floor. Simple. Effective. I'm pretty sure we've seen that one before. I think there's a few repeats this season. Not quite as many as uh, the season before, though, where they, I'm sure they did a full, a full repeat run. <laughs> so what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to... Watch hugs, apparently. Although Homer misinterprets making bacon on the beach. <laughs> his reverie is interrupted by his seldom-seen neighbour on the non-Flanders side, Sylvia Winfield. As first and perhaps last seen back in Season 1, Episode 3, Homer's Odyssey, as Homer carried his suicide boulder to the bridge. Anyway, she's off to Florida to run out the clock and asks for Homer's assistance in shifting their house. Tom, what are the small favours... For which the Winfields ask. Whenever you walk past your window, could you please wear pants? Mm, no. Please bring in your Jekyll lanterns from past Halloweens. Mm, no. And please cover your garbage. It's attracting wildlife. Yes. In this case, a moose. <laughs> Full marks. Some undisclosed time later, Homer gets palpitations when he sees curbside stuff including free oestrogen. And further excitement when he sees an advert for the Frying Dutchman, an all-you-can-eat seafood restaurant. He insists they go, despite Marge being allergic to seafood. 
Anyway, the curbside bounty was due to the Winfields being successful in moving. So who will be their next neighbours? Well, Homer's adept at scaring off potential residents with his paddling pool antics. But somehow they shift the place to Ruth Powers and her daughter Laura, who gets great kudos from the Simpson kids by scaring the bejesus out of Bart on first meeting, and from Marge for the manners lent to her by a painfully strict upbringing. <laughs> Marge brings Ruth a neighbourhood welcome basket. I was going to make this a quiz, but I felt some of the items were a bit too sketchy to describe. I spotted a nail file, some clothes pegs, a voucher for a free tattoo with every tattoo removal. Possibly at the Happy Sailor? Possibly by Mervyn Munro? We shall never know, but I choose to believe. <laughs> and a voucher for a free beer at Moe's. Plus, of course, a copy of the Triple X classic Das Butt, which leads Ruth to reveal that she is divorced. Meanwhile, Laura and Bart are swapping pranks, and when she runs off Curly and Dolph and spits in his hand, Bart falls for Laura which is no excuse for not washing his hand, as he realises when he gets stuck to the dog. <laughs> that point makes it even less likely they'll find a babysitter, due to the trauma Bart has inflicted on all available parties. But now, of course, there's someone he'll definitely behave for living right next door. In a point that goes nowhere, and seems like it was maybe the jumping-off point for a principal charming star subplot, Homer fails to tiptoe around Ruth's divorce, and she asks him to set her up with any eligible friends. I'm glad this goes nowhere, as it's a potential early Harrison. <laughs> Bart bathes, actually bathes, puts on a smoking jacket and produces a bubble pipe for Laura's arrival, and they order in some assumedly Afghan food from two guys from Kabul, including some good labna. And Marge and Homer are getting a good feed, and by that I mean Homer is at the Frying Dutchman, where even the bread contains a surprisingly large amount of fish. Homer, of course, demands the unlimited buffet. Laura teaches Bart to waltz, leading to a wonderfully animated dream sequence, whilst Homer gets to work on all the shrimp and two plastic lobsters. Having branded him a remorseless eating machine, restaurant manager Captain McAllister tries to kick him out as they're closing, but Homer, crucially, has not had all he can eat. Eventually, he is strong-armed out of the restaurant, much to his distress, and decides to fight it in the courts, like Don Quixote. So it's straight to the only solicitor cheap and desperate enough to take the case. Yes, it's Lionel Hutz at I Can't Believe It's a Law Firm. <laughs> he believes it's the most blatant case of false advertising since the film The Never-Ending Story, which apparently he also sued. <laughs> Homer is the greatest hero in American history, and the game is afoot. Bart goes to see Abe at the retirement castle, coincidentally on the latter's birthday, to get some love advice. He tells a rambling story about dating the world's oldest woman and wearing a beard of bees. So it's off to Homer, whose choice of a beer-related analogy still leaves Bart none the wiser. Just as he's wondering how to get Laura to notice him, she summons him to his own treehouse and comes all dressed up, only to reveal that she has a boyfriend. Kano wins. Fatality. <laughs> Worse than having his heart torn out is the identity of the ardent swain. None other than Jimbo Jones, one of Bart's regular bullies. Laura's attracted to his apparent tough guy image. But she's babysitting them again and invites Jimbo round when Homer goes off for his trumped-up lawsuit. Hutz actually lands a blow by revealing that Captain McAllister is not actually a real sea captain. 
but the blue-haired lawyer, acting in defence, successfully paints Homer as an unnatural eater. Hutz seems to have the upper hand when Marge reveals that they drove around until 3am looking for another all-you-can-eat fish restaurant, then went fishing, and given that the jury is somewhat girthy, McAllister cuts his losses and negotiates a deal. Homer can have all he can eat, for real this time, but he must do so in the restaurant as McAllister charges people to see him as Bottomless Pete, Nature's Cruelest Mistake. Bart has plenty of reasons to resent Jimbo's presence, so he makes a crank call to Mo for the first time in ages, as we see Mo trying to get out of honouring Ruth's coupon. Bart asks for Amanda hug and kiss, but this time when Mo threatens to sh shove a sausage down his throat and stick starving dogs in his butt, he gives his address and says his name is Jimbo Jones. Mo grabs a rusty and dull butcher knife and rushes off to get his revenge, getting lost on the way, and eventually belittles a bawling Jimbo, whose pants were chafing him at the time. Laura is put off by a spineless display, though Mo has to rush back to restart Barney's heart before he can do any damage, and Laura reveals that if Bart was just old enough to grow a bad teenage moustache, she'd date him in a second, and joins him in a final Mo crank call to Ivana Tingle, as the captain and Homer share a round at the tavern, and I get very excited as Disney Plus tells me it's Mr. Plough next time. We've <laughs> done it, Tom. We've done it. We've reached the land of the giants at last. So, uh, I liked this one more than I remembered. Um, and though the B-plot is pretty thin, it's full of great moments to prop up a relatable main feature. What do you think? Yeah, I really like this one, because a lot of people would look at this one and think that it's some par, but you look at it and it's like wall-to-wall memeable stuff. It's really stuff that sticks in people's heads. And we've sort of come full circle because I mentioned this one several episodes ago. No idea when, but maybe when we were looking at season two, that, that long ago, we mentioned Homer giving Bart the talk as an example of they obviously rewrite jokes several times until it's really funny. You make you want a wretch. <laughs> and we finally mentioned this one. So, yeah, we've come a long way. Absolutely. A fair way to go, though, I would say, at this stage. Would you like to hear about some character debuts? Yes, please. So the obvious ones in this episode are Ruth and Laura Powers. Let's start with Laura, as she's the featured guest character. Laura is the daughter of Ruth and unknown, is unknown years old, although definitely a teenager, and is a tomboy. After this appearance, she appears very briefly in the Simpsons movie and in one of the clip shows, but only in clips from this episode. Now that's possibly because she was voiced by a high-profile guest star. That was Sarah Gilbert, at that stage stupendously famous for her role as Darlene Connors in ABC sitcom Roseanne a vaguely similar character to Laura overall. She would later feature in ER and The Big Bang Theory, and was married to Four Non Blondes frontwoman Linda Perry. Ruth is divorced, probably an alcoholic as she can be spotted at Drink Driver's Education and an AA meeting in the future, and is having child support withheld by her ex-husband. Despite their differences, she is a good friend to Marge, and that's possibly why we don't see much of her, since Marge isn't allowed to be happy at any stage. <laughs> the character is voiced by Pamela Reed here, plus some other appearances, and an upcoming appearance in a currently unscheduled episode. 
Pamela's highest profile role seems to be opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop, but she has a full CV of TV and movie appearances dating back to 1976. At other times, the character is voiced by series regular guest star Pamela Hayden. Ruth appears a couple more times, including one very high-profile appearance in Season 5, Episode 6, Marge on the Lamb, and is a popular background and cameo character for basically the entire rest of the series to date. She has one more featured appearance in Season 14, Episode 9, The Strong Arms of the Ma, where it's revealed she spent some time in jail and got into bodybuilding. And also, we have a third debut. Would you believe this is the debut appearance of Horatio McAllister, better known as the Sea Captain? And that's very interesting that it's his first episode, because you'd have thought that he would have been picked up as a minor character by this episode. But I, no, I did not know that this was his full debut. Well, there we go. This stereotypical salty sea dog does everything even slightly sea-related. From sea shanties to seafood restaurants to running an academy to toughen up lobsters to actually, you know, sailing once in a while, despite stating under oath in this episode that he's not really a captain, and stating in a later episode that he hates the sea and everything in it, <laughs> possibly because it took his Game Boy from him. He's voiced by Hank Azaria, so I assume he'll be stepping aside to let a real sailor voice the part in the future. And he modelled the voice on the British actor Robert Newton, who played pirates in a number of films, including Long John Silver and Blackbeard. Probably the most high-profile pirate roles available. <laughs> He's actually, uh, Captain McAllister is actually in the next episode as well, so they, um, they clearly got on a roll with uh, mm. this kind of stereotypical uh, sea dog writing. Arr. Did you know Hunks is based on Studs? A Fox show similar to The Dating Game, and therefore its UK version, Blind Date. <laughs> but designed to be more focused on sex than dating. It ran from 1991 until 1993. Just a small snapshot of its time then, albeit in a format that's recognisable to this day. Speaking of a snapshot of its time, when the moose appears, we hear a snatch of incidental music based on the theme tune from Northern Exposure a CBS dramedy about a small town in Alaska, which featured a moose in its opening titles and ran from 1990 to 1995. You always used to hear about that show, but it seems to have essentially disappeared from the public's consciousness since, although I did find out that the moose they used for the titles was called Mort, so there you go. <laughs> if you're going to have a moose, call it Mort. Yeah, it makes sense. The scene where the letters to Santa are marched into the courtroom is lifted from Miracle on 34th Street. And it must have been the 1947 version, as the Richard Attenborough remake wouldn't be released until 1994. The pornographic video cassette Das Butt is a reference, hopefully in title only, to Das Boot, a 1981 West German film about U-boat operators in the Second World War. And finally... Bart gives the Simpsons address as 1094 Evergreen Terrace, when of course the accepted address is 742 Evergreen Terrace. The address did change a fair few times in early seasons, and has been stated as 94, 723 and 1094 Evergreen Terrace, plus 430 Spalding Way in Season 4 Episode 1 Camp Krusty, which is just completely wrong. Yeah. Thank heavens for eventual continuity. 
wondering if there's some sort of mathematical significance to all of those numbers. I know something we could ask. <laughs> yeah. So, Tom, speaking of mathematically significant numbers, <laughs> I believe you've got a fair number of memeable moments for us. Yeah, basically this episode is wall-to-wall memes. It's, it's memes literally from the start. Because the first line is is in itself a meme from the show Hunks. He looks so sexy, I hoped we would have sex. There's a lot of sex in this episode, that's, that's what he said. Number two is when Homer spots what's been left outside the Winfield's house. Wire hangers, expired medicines, old newspapers. And that's quickly followed by number three. Come on, Marge, maybe I'm not getting enough. Estrogen. Number four is, I think, the first ever appearance of the sea captain. Is it more iced tea you be needing? Okay. <laughs> oh, that cracks me up every time. Then when the Winfields are trying to sell their house and the couple who are prospective buyers see Homer eating a hot dog in his paddling pool. The image of Homer eating a hot dog in his paddling pool is... Something that echoes down the ages. Oh, I just wouldn't want to eat a wet hot dog. Particularly no. the bun. Oh. No, that sounds pretty revolting. It's knocked me sick, that one. Then you have a scene where there's one screen grab in particular that just screams terror. And that's when Bart and Lisa end up in the former Winfield's basement. And Lisa says, I never thought you should be down here. Number seven is just after Laura spits on Bart's hand and Bart says, I'll never wash this hand again. And then you've got a smash cut to his hand. is filthy, basically. And Lisa says, Dad, make Bart wash his hand. Sorry, Lisa, no longer control the hand. The hand controls me. And then you've got Homer calling up the you, sister. And <laughs> the reply on the line is, Sorry, this isn't Tabby. This is her sister. I look after her now. No, put it down. Bart, Bart, put it down. <laughs> Especially with her eyes going. Then you have, with all the subtlety of a hot knife through butter, if I can mix my metaphors enough, uh, um, Homer and Ruth Powers talking about Ruth's sex life, and Homer does his infamous sex face combined with the noise I think the way his tongue sticks out in in that scene is particularly memorable then you've got the two guys from Kabul Afghanistan with one of them saying to the other sometimes I think you want to fail number 11 is when Homer has his old you can eat at the seafood restaurant and one of the chefs says please don't take the steam tray sir number 12 is a great marital argument, is when Homer says, I'm like that guy, that Spanish guy, the one who fought for windmills, and Marge goes, Don Quixote. No, the man of La Mancha. No, I'm pretty sure that was Don Quixote. Fine, I'll look it up. And the expression on Homer's face when he sees that Marge is right. Well, who was it? Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Then you have Bart and Laura playing a video game an arcade game called Escape from Death Row, um, which is partly influenced by Lara Valuta, only it's a lot more extreme. 
you have a change of a new button and they end up in Texas and they end up electrocuted. <laughs> then you've got two Lionel Hut slides in quick succession. This is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film, The Never Ending Story. So that's number 14. Then straight after it is number 15. I don't use the word hero very often, but you are the greatest hero in American history. But of course, it, it could be anything, and it could be anything that's being pointed at, which is why that's the meme of a thousand uses. It, it is indeed. It Including is indeed. a humorous substitute for your own meme. <laughs> uh, then you've got one of Grandpa's rambles, which ends with, I wore a £15 beard of bees for that woman, but it just wasn't enough. Then you have how Homer learned about the facts of life. Zookeeper, those two monkeys are killing each other. They're having sex. Oh. I never noticed until we were watching it just then that it is audible that he's saying they're having sex. Maybe mm-hmm. I've just never listened to it loud enough before. Possibly, possibly. Then number 18 is Homer giving Bart the talk, uh, saying <laughs> comparing women to beer. Uh, then you have uh, number 19, and I'm trying to make a crossover meme with the with the vet who throws the hamster in the in the bin with this which is where Bart has a vision of Laura ripping his heart out you won't be needing this so Laura rips it out realises it's still beating then she drop kicks it into a bin that shares some vibes with the hamster falling into the bin after it's died I'm sure it's the part of the job she hates yes absolutely then number 20, stick with me. Um, you've been flushing for 20 minutes. Is there a problem? Uh, Principal Skinner stood outside the toilets, using the same toilets as the students, which is slightly mm. odd. Then at number 21, you have, do these sound like the actions of a man who had all he could eat? And then you have a load of rather portly jurors going, no, that could have been me. Then number 22 is when Homer is invited back to the restaurant and the sea captain says, Come see bottomless peace, nature's crawlest mistake. And then at 23 is someone in the audience saying, I heard they shaved a gorilla. Which uh, took me back to the call of the Simpsons in some ways. Mm. With Homer as, a, Homer as Bigfoot. Then at number 24, Jimbo James's flawless teenage flirting technique my shirt's chafing me. Mind if I take it off? And you got Barney Gumble in the bar, uh, where he's lying out on the bar, just pumping beer down his throat. We've all dreamed of being there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he goes, oh, oh, my heart just stopped. Then there's a few seconds of nothing, and then, oh, there it goes. Then you've got Mbo running around, trying to find Evergreen Terrace, first of all, and then bumping into something. And going, ow, stupid wishing well. Yeah, that, that's a real, a, a real shock of a joke for me. Like, I'm kind of, why, why, why a wishing well? I well, mean, it's very, very funny, but of all the things you could have run into, how did they get to that? They obviously decided that wishing well was funniest. <laughs> and finally, in this Marath meme section, number 27, as usual, a knife-wielding maniac has shown us the way. And you could certainly argue that there's more memes than that, but uh, 27 is what I've gone for. I wonder if I wonder if we'll top that. It is it is an awful lot. 
really is. We really should be keeping a league table of this. It suddenly occurs. But, um. Yeah, because this is, this is top of the league, this episode. Mm. Now, Tom, women priests mm. discuss. Okay, so we're going from C&E to the C of E. <laughs> like what I did there? Okay, on November the 11th, 1992, the General Synod of the Church of England voted to allow women to be ordained as priests for the first time, bringing it in line with other Anglican communions from around the world and setting it even further apart from the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, as usual, I need to lay my cards on the table. I'm an atheist, in particular humanist. I'm not at all religious. Having said that, I'm not one of those arsehole atheists who is going to mock someone for their faith. Also, I realise how important it is to world history. Indeed, I would say that without religion, there is no history. It's that important. So how is the Church of England organised? Well, at the very top, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, who also has the title of Primate of England. Oh, we're back to shaved gorillas again. <laughs> Now, this doesn't mean that he's some sort of super-evolved chimp. Well, you could argue that he is, given that he's a human. But that he's the head of a primacy, that being England. Primacies are divided into provinces. And provinces are areas that are headed up by an archbishop. England is split into two provinces, and they are essentially north and south. Headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury whereas the north is headed by the Archbishop of York. Each province is divided into dioceses, each of which has a bishop. For example, the Diocese of Liverpool is run by the Bishop of Liverpool. Each diocese is split into archdeaconries. I wonder who runs those. Yeah, and funnily enough, they're under the jurisdiction of an archdeacon. They are, in turn split into deaneries, and each one of those has a dean, although, although not Dean Bitterman. Uh, that, that uptight dean. Yeah, and deans are split into parishes, and each of each parish has a priest. For various reasons, the priest can be called a vicar or rector. Oh, okay. I didn't realise those were all terms for the same thing. Pretty much, pretty much. There, there are historical reasons why sometimes they're called priests, sometimes they're called vicars, sometimes they're called rectors. It's all very complicated and it goes back hundreds of years. So since 1970, the church has held its own parliament, known as the General Synod. It is trisemoral, meaning it comprises of three parts. They have a house of bishops... Which, which is made up of 51 bishops from all over England. So they're at the top. Then in the middle, there's the House of Clergy, which comprises of members of the clergy of the Anglican Church. So priests, vicars, that kind of thing. And they are voted in every five years. Finally, there is the House of Laity. This is for lay members of the church, so just normal parishioners, basically, who again are elected to their posts every five years. How the Synod changes law isn't at all simple. Each house must pass each piece of legislation by majority vote, unless it's a change to the church doctrine, such as the ordination of women, where a two-thirds majority is required in each house. 
Before 1970, the church was controlled by the Houses of Parliament, with the House of Commons representing the laity and bishops sitting in the House of Lords. Parliament had little time for the church, so little changed until the arrival of the Synod. However, the bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, retained their right to sit in the House of Lords as the Lord's spiritual, something that remains greatly controversial to this day. In fact, the UK and one other country are the only countries in the world to have reserved seats for clergy in their legislature. Can you think what the other, without looking at my phone, can you think what the other country is that has reserved seats for the clergy in their legislature? Well, there's an obvious guess here, but it depends if we're counting. So I, the first thing that sprung to mind was Italy, just due to that. But then kind of Vatican City is its own autonomous country, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to say Vatican City. Well, the Pope is the dictator, effectively, of <laughs> Vatican City. Um, so the Vatican City doesn't really count. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, Italy, then. No, it's Iran. That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> but can I have two points for having two of the letters in the right place? Uh, why not? Excellent. But how did the Anglican Church get to where it is today? Let's have a look at how it came to be in the first place. Well, Christianity first came to the UK roughly around the time of the Romans. What people saw was the mixture of Celtic and Roman pagan beliefs with Christianity. This is one thing that's very important in the history of religion. Very rarely do you see one tradition completely usurping another one. There's usually a mixture of two or more religions. Around 400 Common Era, the Romans withdrew from Britain and the Angles and Saxons arrived. Neither of these people were Christian, they were pagans. In response to this, Pope Gregory the Great started a mission in 596 to make them Christian. The mission was headed up by Augustine of Canterbury. The mission was a great success, with King Ethelbert of Kent converting to Christianity. Ethelbert allowed the monks of the mission to settle in Canterbury, where they would go on to build a cathedral. Therefore, Augustine is seen as the founder of the Church of England, and Canterbury is still the seat of the Church's power today. Eventually, the majority of the kingdoms of England became Christian, and in 664, King Oswiu of Northumbria convened the Synod of Whitby, where he decided that England would celebrate Easter at the same time as the church in Rome. So, basically, England was brought into line with Rome officially in 664. Okay. The Church of England was pretty much aligned with Rome up until the time of Henry VIII. In a story that I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with, Henry VIII ended up marrying his dead brother's wife, Catherine of Aragon. Henry's older brother, Arthur, was heir to the English throne when he died of the mysterious illness known as sweating sickness shortly after getting married. Now... At the time, the church were concerned with a certain biblical passage, Leviticus 20.21, which is as follows. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonoured his brother. They will be childless. 
Catherine claimed that her marriage to Arthur had never been consummated, so under church law her marriage didn't really mean anything and she could marry Henry. The Pope in Rome gave the couple special dispensation to marry, despite the existence of Leviticus 2021. Catherine and Henry were married on June 11, 1509, shortly after Henry had become king. We may remember Catherine as being the mother of Mary I, but she and Henry had five other children, all of whom were either stillborn or died in infancy. Henry's desperation for a healthy son led him to want an annulment of his marriage to Catherine, not a divorce, an annulment. This was based on his interpretation of the biblical passage, Leviticus 20.21. Henry argued that his marriage to Catherine was wrong in the eyes of God, and he wanted it annulled by the Pope, leaving him free to marry Anne Boleyn. However, Henry, you may remember, was given special dispensation by Rome to marry Catherine in the first place, and they were worried what Catherine's nephew, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, would think of it. So the Pope, Clement VII, refused. The Holy Roman Empire. I can think of at least three things wrong in that title. <laughs> so Henry officially separated the English Church from Rome in 1534. After that, the Church of England pretty much yo-yoed between Protestantism which began in 1517 when Martin Luther published his 95 Theses and Catholicism. During the time of Henry VIII, the Church maintained a lot of Catholic traditions, such as Holy Communion and Latin Masses, but Henry did start something that would change the face of England forever, the dissolution of the monasteries. This process, overseen by Thomas Cromwell, saw the closure of almost 900 religious houses in England, to start with, Cromwell either visited or appointed people to visit each of the monasteries. He concluded that some monasteries didn't have enough monks to be viable, and in others, irreligiosity was a big problem. Monks and nuns getting up to all sorts of <laughs> mischief zoos, for example. So these monasteries were closed down. In response, the uprising known as the Pilgrimage of Grace occurred. This was a popular uprising against Henry VIII that started in Yorkshire and spread to nearby English counties. It was eventually put down and the leaders executed. From then on, Henry associated monasticism with rebellion and people who supported the monasteries were viewed with suspicion. To remain open, the monasteries had to pay taxes to the crown. Tax on religion, not a bad idea. Most couldn't afford the taxes and they were closed or dissolved. Some went to ruin, such as Whitby Abbey, while others were sold and converted for other uses, such as Jesus College, Cambridge, which used to be a nunnery. Ah. Henry VIII died on January 28, 1547, at the age of 55, and was succeeded by his son, Edward, who became Edward VI. Under Edward's reign, the Church of England gravitated more towards Protestantism, with the clergy no longer having to be celibate. During his reign, the first Book of Common Prayer was written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. This book was written in English, and it contained instructions on how to conduct church services, everything from baptism to funerals. With it, church services were no longer limited to Latin. Edward died on July 6, 1553, at the age of just 15. 
his death precipitated a power struggle. In his will, Edward wrote that his first cousin once removed, Lady Jane Grey, should be queen. She was proclaimed queen on July 10th, just four days after Edward died. However, in the countryside, support for Edward's half-sister Mary grew, and she was proclaimed queen on July 19th, meaning Jane was queen for just nine days. She was convicted of treason and executed a year later. Mary, who was a staunch Catholic, set about reversing all the changes to the Church of England that her half-brother Edward had made. Her marriage to the Catholic Philip of Spain caused Thomas Wyatt to lead an army from Kent against her in an event known as Wyatt's Rebellion. Wyatt was defeated just outside London and later executed along with Lady Jane Grey. Mary's marriage to Philip proved to be problematic to the English Parliament. Philip was a Habsburg, one of the most powerful families in European history. Parliament feared that if anything happened to Mary, he would take all her property, including the Kingdom of England, and turn it into a Habsburg backwater. The compromise they came up with was that England would not be obliged to offer military assistance in any Habsburg war, and that Philip would not be allowed to appoint his own people to keep positions. On the religious side, Mary voided all of Edward's religious laws and declared her parents' marriage valid, legitimising her reign. She declared that church doctrine would return to how it was in 1539, which meant the priests had to be celibate again. Dang. Mm. Mary also did a deal with Parliament to restore the authority of Rome and the Heresy Acts. Mary had a lot of prominent Protestants burned at the stake, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer, who was forced to watch for bishops Ridley and Latimer burn, recanted his Protestant faith. When Mary refused his repentance, he withdrew it on the day of his burning. In total, 283 people were executed, earning Mary the title of Bloody Mary among Protestants. Mary died on November 17th, 1558, aged 42, and was succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a Protestant, but she did try to reconcile Protestantism and Catholicism with the Elizabethan Settlement, a series of Parliament that created the notion of Anglicanism as we understand it today. The 39 Articles of Religion were finalised in 1571 and incorporated into the Book of Common Prayer. For example, Articles 22 to 24 detail the errors to be avoided in the Church, and they included the selling of indulgences, the practice that in part sparked the Reformation, and the idea that someone can preach without the authority of the Church, which went against radical Protestant beliefs. They were very much looking for a third way. They were the liberal democrats of their time. <laughs> Elizabeth also died childless, and she was succeeded by the Scottish King James VI, who became King James I of England. He ordered that the Bible be translated into English and made widely available. This Bible became known as the King James Bible. And to many Christians in the English-speaking world, it remains the authoritative translation of the Bible to this day. You read the New International Version? Ugh, you want to read the KJV. James I was succeeded by his son, who became Charles I. 
He was the one who was executed by beheading at the end of the English Civil War, leading to a period where England was essentially a republic, headed by Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell was a Puritan, and the Church of England changed to reflect that. After Cromwell died in 1658, the monarchy was restored in 1660, and Charles I's son became King Charles II. After that, the monarchy acted like the English Commonwealth never existed. Say, for example, parliamentary papers of 1657 said that Charles II was on the throne. They basically rewrote history. Great. Nothing worrying about that. Mm -hmm. After the Restoration, Anglicanism reverted to a form seen in the time of Elizabeth. Catholics and Protestants who dissented from the Anglican establishment were tolerated, but they weren't allowed any sort of power. That was religious tolerance, the sort of tolerance that we're all familiar with these days, the idea that you don't have to agree with someone's religion, but at the end of the day, we're all just trying to get on with our lives. Hmm. One issue that had always been contentious in Anglicanism and religion in general was the role of women. In 1861, Elizabeth Catherine Ferrard, a Huguenot, became the first deaconess of the Church of England. Like all deaconesses who followed her, she wasn't ordained, and her role was mostly ceremonial. During the First World War, when a lot of men were out fighting in the trenches, many women became lay readers in the Anglican Church, known as Bishop's Messengers. Throughout the 20th century, women within the Anglican Communion have campaigned to be ordained. On November the 11th, 1992, that finally happened in England. The issue was debated in the General Synod, the Church of England's Parliament, for five and a half hours. At the end of the debate, a vote was taken. The ordination of women was voted for by 39 to 13 by the bishops, 176 to 74 by the clergy, and 169 to 82 by the laity. This meant that it met the two-thirds threshold and became church law. Around a 1,000 people quit the church in protest, including Anne Widdicombe. Ugh. And I apologise for mentioning Anne Widdicombe on this podcast. <laughs> Anne Widdicombe would, of course, go on to become a Catholic. The church I'm a part of isn't oppressing women enough. I'm going to join a different one. Basically her logic there. Although the General Synod made the ordination of women legal in 1992... The first women weren't ordained as priests until 1994. One of the first women to be ordained was Joy Carroll, now known as Joy Carroll Wallace, since she got married, because you can't do that in the Church of England. She was the inspiration for the character Geraldine Granger, otherwise known as the Vicar of Dibley. The BBC show, written by Richard Curtis of Love Actually fame... Don't get me started on Love Actually. It's one of the worst films ever. The show starred Dawn French in the title role and had a cast that featured Emma Chambers as the verger Alice Tinker and Roger Lloyd Pack. Remember him? Trigger from Only Fools and Horses. And I think he was in a few episodes of Doctor Who as well. He was playing the Cyberman leader or something. I just remember him making a face. Right, Okay. 
In 2004, the show was placed third in a BBC poll of Britain's best sitcoms. It's not as edgy as the shows we would usually talk about, but it had its moments. In the first episode where Geraldine is introduced to the village, the leader of the council's David Horton doesn't even think that she could be the new vicar, and he reacts with horror when Geraldine reveals what her role is. His line of, I will call the bishop and let him know there has been a mistake, we're not going to be an experiment, echoes what the Reverend Peter Geldard said after the Synod vote. This decision will pit diocese against diocese, parish against parish, and parishioner against parishioner. Babies, having babies. I'd have, uh, I'd have paid to see that particular fight. <laughs> Sadly, it didn't come to pass. I mean. mm. So votes on the role of women in the Church of England didn't end in 1992. In 2014, General Synod voted that women could also become bishops. In May 2018, Dame Sarah Mullally was consecrated as the Bishop of London, the most senior ranking woman in the Church of England to date. The Church of England have yet to appoint a woman to the post of Archbishop of Canterbury, but maybe they'll get there one day. Ah. God, my teeth are so many S's in that Protestantism, Catholicism. Oh, I don't make things easy for myself. So, um, speaking of things that aren't easy, I, I had to go away and find out um, something about women priests in The Simpsons. This was a bit of an ordeal, which was complicated by the existence of one Mary Simpson, who was one of the first women to be ordained a priest by the American Episcopal Church. And it has to be said, even after the Catholic Church made a few changes <laughs> in Season 10, Episode 12, Sunday Cruddy Sunday, our featured priests, from Timothy Lovejoy to Liam Neeson's Father Sean in Season 16, Episode 12, The Father, the Son and the Holy Guest Star, all the way to... Well, that's about it, really. And we've discussed the Pope quite recently. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a holy sausage fest when it comes to the clergy in Springfield, I'm afraid. And on that sausage fest, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing... Please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.